The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that forgiveness and repentance should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending on you the promise of my father, but you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And leading them out as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And as he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We say we believe in the ascension, but do we live like we believe it? We come to the end of our resurrection series in this Easter season, and we end here with this ascension moment. We confess these words every week that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again in glory. But do we live like we believe this ascension story? See, this ascension moment needs to be understood as the enthronement of Jesus as the king of the cosmos. That this is his ascension ceremony. He is ascending the throne. Think of an ancient medieval throne and that whole enthronement ceremony, that coronation moment. You can argue that what Luke has given us here is in fact the king of kings coronation liturgy. All these words and all these moments as he walks up those steps and ascends his throne. And as part of this coronation moment, as part of this coronation liturgy, the king gives us, his people, our mission. He gives us what we're to do, how we're to live as his subjects in his world for the sake of his world. And not only in this coronation liturgy does he give us our mission, but the king gives us a promise. Verse 49 says, Behold, I am sending upon you the promise of my Father, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What the king is really saying is, I'm giving you in this enthronement moment, in this ascension coronation liturgy, I'm giving you your mission and I'm giving you the promise which will be the power to live out the mission I give you. He's saying, it's going to be okay. I know the mission will seem enormous, but I'm giving you the power to live this life. These are the words of the king as he is enthroned. The trouble we have 
if we're honest, is that most of us will spend our entire Christian lives trying to believe the king, trying to believe and trust his promise that he will give us the power to live the life he's called us to live. The greatest evidence of my lack of trust that the king will give me his promise, his power to live this life, the greatest evidence of my lack of trust is my so often lack of joy. See, the disciples, in response to this enthronement, this ascension, this coronation liturgy, their liturgical response at the end is to return to Jerusalem, verse 52 and 53 says, with great joy. And they're continually in the temple praising God. Joy is the response that is meant to come from the king's promise at his coronation. But if I'm honest, so often I'm lacking in that joy of the disciples. I love how Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, describes joy and how rare it is. Just to be clear, joy is not always happy. It's not bouncy. But even in the midst of suffering and pain, joy is that enduring quality of faith and trust and satisfaction in God. But here's what Barth says. He says, joy is the rarest and most infrequent thing in the world. He said, we already have enough fanatical seriousness and humorless zeal, but joy? This shows us that the perception of the living God is rare in our world. Because when we have found God our Savior or when he has found us, we will rejoice in him. If I'm honest, I resemble far too often this seriousness, this humorless zeal, far more often than I show the joy of these disciples. But these disciples, facing the challenge of what was before them, they knew that this mission was not going to be easy. They knew that it would mean ostracism, that it would mean jail time and torture and even death, and yet their response to this coronation liturgy is joy. Great joy, verse 52. Mega joy in the Greek. Was it because these disciples were super Christians? Nope. We've met these disciples in the pages of Scripture. They were far from super Christians. The difference for these disciples is they trusted the king. And they trusted his promise. They beheld the coronation of the king of the cosmos. And they trusted the promise that he gave them. How do we learn that kind of trust? How do we learn to trust the king enthroned. Well, trust is always the issue. It's always the issue with God, right? I mean, every moment in scripture and every moment of our lives is just another opportunity for God to say to each one of us, will you trust me even in this? Will you trust me? It's like the tightrope walker, Charles Blondin. He was walking on a tightrope across the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, the much more impressive side. 
And the Duke of Newcastle was there watching. And at one point, he brought a wheelbarrow, Charles Blondin, across the tightrope and walked right up to the Duke of Newcastle and said, do you believe that I could take a man in this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And the Duke of Newcastle said, I do. And Charles Blondin said, then jump in. (laughs) The Duke of Newcastle did not jump in the wheelbarrow. See, we believe and say we trust the king. But do our lives reflect that trust? How do I learn to trust the king's ascension promises? Well, Luke would say by looking and observing and studying and chewing on this ascension story. This ascension liturgy, this ascension enthronement coronation liturgy, as we look at it, what we will see is, first of all, the problem. The ascension liturgy shows us first the problem, and the problem's us. We're going to be a problem in this whole mission. But not only does it show us the problem, it shows us the promise, the promise of power, But thanks be to God, the king doesn't leave us there because it's it's not enough just to show us the problem and to give us the promise. He goes one step further. The king in his ascension, coronation, enthronement moment proves to you and me that he will keep this promise. See, first he shows us the problem. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. He says, the problem is us, that we are the ones that the king is sending into his world with his mission. Because if we're honest for even just a moment, we'll recognize how much this is just too much and too big for us. I mean, look, for example, at the subject or the content of the mission. Verse 46 and 47 says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So the message we get to go out into this world, this this world that is so full of self-excusing, self-affirming, self-deifying behavior, into that world we get to come and say, repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's going to go over really well. And yet that is the only way that a person may be saved. To hear of the story of the death and resurrection of the Son of God and in response to his grace to repent and turn to him. As Tim Keller says, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever imagined and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel that we are given to take into this world. But not only is the message itself difficult, the content of the message, but the scope of the mission. All nations. All nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is to go everywhere, into every context, every culture, every challenging situation, every challenging people group. This message is to go there. This week we had our men's hockey night. A bunch of men from the parish got together And we watched a Stanley Cup hockey game together. And there was a moment as the game was beginning that I heard one of our men say behind me, 
Why is the grass out there white? I'm living, O oh Lord, in a foreign land. <laughs> Every nation, even the great and glorious nation of Texas, the gospel is to go everywhere. And if we're honest, it's just too much. And this is how it often then plays out when we acknowledge that it's too much for us. What, what response comes out of you out of me so often, seriousness, that humorlessness that Bart talked about, that lack of joy, because all of a sudden we start asking ourselves, how am I possibly going to get through this? How am I going to find the strength to get through this set of challenges before me? And we get very serious and we get very humorless and the joy is far from us. I remember when we were settling here a few years ago, all the changes coming to Plano for us as a family, sitting one night with our girls doing a devotional, sitting at the edge of their bed, and, and, and the devotional was James 1, verse 2, which reads, Count it all joy, brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so I prompted the girls. I said, so trials, what kind of trials are you facing? No response. I said, but come on, new place, new church, new schools, new home, new friends, all this stuff has changed, trials, you, what trials and nothing. Finally, one of the girls said, daddy, are there some trials that you want to talk about? <laughs> See, as we look at our tasks that God has given us to live as his witnesses in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. We, we, we eventually will say, it's too much. It, it's too much for me, oh God. And that's exactly where we need to get to. Because when we realize that it's too much for us, we will cling to the promise of the king. We will stop trying to do it in our power. And we will do it instead in the power of his promise that he gives us, which is what he tells us next in this coronation, ascension, enthronement liturgy. Verse 49, behold, I'm sending on you, you broken, incomplete disciples of mine who I love. I am sending on you the promise of my father. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What the power is he's referencing is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Next week, when we come to Pentecost, we look at this overflowing of God's empowering presence coming into our lives. The Holy Spirit enabling us to actually begin living out this mission that he has given us. And we need to recognize on this Ascension Sunday, before we get to Pentecost, how vital Ascension is to Pentecost, how essential it is that ascension happens, that the king has ascended his throne in order that Pentecost would happen. Here's what I mean. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus speaks about his ascension. And here's what he says. They're sort of surprising words because you'd think that the best thing in the world would be that Jesus would just stick around bodily 
with the disciples after the resurrection forever. You think, no, 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 that would be the best, that Jesus would just be right here resurrected with us. But he says this in John 16, 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, what Jesus is referencing here is the great linkage doctrinally between the ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. As part of this coronation, ascension, enthronement liturgy, we're told in verse 51 and 52 that after he blessed them, he parted from them, and here's Luke's language, and he was carried into heaven. Carried into heaven. Now, we've got to figure out in the ascension doctrine, what does that mean? Where is his throne? In heaven. It is certainly not somewhere up there. Like when the first Russian cosmonaut went into space and came back and declared to the world, I've been in the heavens and there is no God there. That's a misunderstanding of where heaven is. Heaven where the king's throne is, is the realm of God. The realm of God, heaven, which is right around us and beside us and all over us, the realm of God, which here's what's key, is outside of our space-time existence. Heaven is outside of space and time. Why is it important that the king ascends his throne outside space and time? It doesn't just stay here in his resurrected body. Because now that Jesus is enthroned as king outside space and time means he can be everywhere within space and time for us now. He can be in our presence. He can be in the dreams of Muslims who are turning to Christ. He can be with Paul on the road to Damascus. He can be with John on Pat and he can meet us every time we gather for worship because outside time and space, he can be everywhere. As Tim Keller says, Jesus' ascension is not a distancing of his presence with the church. It is a magnification of his presence with the church. It is a good thing that I go away because when I go, I will send the helper. Jesus will we will experience the king's presence now personally through the presence of the holy spirit in the life of the believer this holy spirit god's empowering presence the presence of power of god that enabled elijah to raise the dead and made David dance before the Ark of the Covenant, and made Moses part the Red Sea, that Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, now lives in you and me because the King from his throne has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And we see the effect of that promise. On the day of Pentecost, there's Peter, uneducated, unwise so often, recently so unfaithful, Peter gets up in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He preaches. And 3,000 come to faith that day. Now, again, let's be clear. The power of the Holy Spirit continues beyond Peter. 3,000, I mean, that's great, but it's just a blip in the Roman Empire. I mean, it's literally, if you take it by the numbers, about 0.0017% of the Roman population. 
Give it 300 years. 300 years of this power, this promise poured out on the church. And all of a sudden, 3,000 becomes 33 million and over 50% of the Roman Empire. This is the effect of God's empowering presence, the promise from the enthroned king. And let's be clear, this effect is happening yet today. In Africa, for example, the last 120 years of the church in Africa, in 1900, you had 9 million believers in Africa, made up about 8% of the population. Today, over 500 million believers in Africa making up nearly 50% of the population. This is the power of God. The promise of the ascended king working in the hearts and minds and bodies of average, ordinary Christians and changing the world. Now you may say, but do I have the Holy Spirit? I sure don't feel clothed with power from on high. And that may be true. But here's what Scripture holds together about this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. Holy Scripture tells us two things, side by side. And we got to hold them both. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we're told that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you are unable to come to a place of faith if the Holy Spirit has not come in and softened and prepared your heart. If you are a Christian today and can say, Jesus is Lord, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. But at the same time then, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us that you can quench the Holy Spirit. See, somehow in the mystery of God, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and yet somehow, mysteriously, we can quench the Holy Spirit's presence, push him aside, ignore him. I know in my own life that my most regular quenching of the Holy Spirit is simply living as if he didn't live in me, trying to do it all on my own power, all by my own strength. And of course, in comes the seriousness, right? In comes the humorless lack of zeal. Thanks be to God, this ascension liturgy does not leave us here. With this incredible problem of the call to live as a Christian, the, our mission, and with an incredible promise that we will be clothed with power from on high, he doesn't leave us there. The liturgy of the ascension continues with a final image that proves his point. The king, as he ascends, includes a final image that proves that we can trust the promise. You see, remember we began with that whole question of trust. How do I trust? Well, we end with trust. And arguably, Luke's whole gospel, by the way, is about trust. It's about learning trust. Just as an example, Luke begins and ends his gospel with trust stories. Listen to the parallelism here. Beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1. It begins in the temple. Zechariah is given a promise by God that he'll have a son, John the Baptist. Zechariah does not believe the promise. And he is struck mute until the promise is fulfilled. But then Luke ends his gospel again in the temple. The disciples are given a promise. 
the promise of power from on high from the king. They believe the promise and they're struck with joy, praise, words. This parallel with two different outcomes, what, what, what gives? What's the difference? Two trust stories, but with very different outcomes. What's happened in the last 24 chapters that changes ordinary people to suddenly be able to trust the promises of God? Well, a whole lot's happened in 24 chapters. And it's summed up in this Ascension Liturgy like this. Look at the Ascension Liturgy. It begins and it ends with proof that you can trust the promise. See, the beginning of the Ascension Liturgy, Jesus, as he's the king getting ready to ascend his throne, what does he say? Verse 44, he says this. Listen carefully. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. So Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament, there were promises made about him, the Messiah. And then in verse 46, he actually lays out specifically what those promises were. That the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The promise in scripture, Jesus begins his ascension liturgy with, is saying there's been a promise from the ages and ages of time that says the Messiah will die and suffer and rise again. That's a promise. That's how the Ascension Liturgy begins. And then he comes to the end of his Ascension Liturgy and his very final act we're told as he led them out as far as Bethany, verse 50 and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them and as he was blessing them he parted from them and was carried into heaven. In other words, the very final moments of this ascension liturgy, the final act of this ascension is an image with the Messiah hands out blessing his disciples. Luke makes a big deal about the arm positioning. He lifted up his hands, he said, and he blessed them. Why does he ascend? Why does he end his ascension liturgy with this posture, hands up blessing his disciples? Why does the enthronement, the ascension end there? Because what are they seeing as they look at those hands? They're seeing the pierced wounds of crucifixion. In other words, if the Ascension Liturgy began by saying, let's remember that the Father made a promise in Scripture, the Messiah would die, he ends it with his hands up as a declaration for us and for the church in every age. Do you see my hands in this Ascension moments that the Father will always keep his promises, even if it means the death of of his son. This is the enthronement of the king. This is the image the church is left with, hands up, blessing enthronements. Suddenly we begin to understand what Paul means in Romans 8.31 when he says, what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us everything else? See, we say 
that we believe in the ascension, but do we live like we believe it? How do we learn to trust the king's ascension promise and to find the joy in believing that promise? Luke says that we're to look at this ascension story, this coronation liturgy, this enthronement moment. And there we see the problem, which is us, yes, limited, broken humanity that we are. And yet in that liturgy, we see the promise, the king's enthronement promise, power from on high, power for you to live in his power, not by your own will, not by your own strength, but not just that, the proof. The proof in those hands, the proof in that enthronement moment that you can trust the Father to keep his promises. As Corey Ten Boom, the concentration, the Dutch concentration camp survivor, wrote these words. She said, look at the world and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look at Jesus and find rest. And leading them out as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And as he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.